as we think about the reality of Christ's reconciliation of us to God, the price he paid for us, and that we as Christian believers, as we join together as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, how can we do any less as his servants than to be reconciled to one another? Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Turn with me in your Bibles to the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. I'll begin reading at verse 11. Hear now God's Word. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So now from, on, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. 1967, my father was transferred to New Orleans, Louisiana for his work in his business. And I was terribly upset because uh, I was in just finishing my sophomore year in high school and I'd gone to school with these people all my whole life up until that time. And so I was distressed. But there was one redeeming thing as I came to Slidell, Louisiana, just across the Pontchartrain from New Orleans. We lived in Slidell. It was that New Orleans was getting its professional football team, the Saints. The unfortunate thing is that we wound up calling them usually the Aints because they just never did much of anything. And this has something to say about 
the people to whom Paul wrote this letter. In the first letter of Corinthians, and then actually in the second as well, he greets them as saints, holy ones. It's a very, very endearing term. But it's also a term that describes who they are in Christ Jesus. They are the saints, the holy ones of God. Just as Brian pointed out in the Presbyterian pumpkin illustration, that God had chosen them and made them his Paul re shares with them about his ministry, the ministry that brought him to them. And he wants them to understand something about their relationship with others. Not only in Corinth, but others around the world. And so we find this passage of Scripture in chapter 5 after he has dealt with some of the issues of the resurrection and death and the way that we experience life and how our bodies waste away. And he reminds them in a verse that I didn't read, in verse 10, of what was the truth about their lives before they came to know Christ. And that is, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. For you see, the Corinthians, before they heard and understood the gospel and responded to the gospel, they were under the judgment of God. And that's why he says in verse 11, if you'll look there with me, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. Why fear? Why is it that we should fear the Lord? Well, we find in the scriptures over and over again, but more clearly so in John's gospel, that Jesus himself was the ambassador of God to the people of the world. We find this stated in John's first chapter of his gospel when he says this in verses 9 through 13. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own because he had made it, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus, Paul had told the Corinthians, had come as the ambassador of God to them, to bring them to himself so that they should no longer fear the judgment of God. Because you see, all of us, for the deeds that are done in the body, if we are outside of Christ, we have much to fear. Because God's judgment 
will fall on those who depend on themselves alone for salvation. This is the way Jesus later states it in the Gospel of John chapter 3 in verses 16 through 18. This is, includes the passage that we so like to recite, but it, oft, it does not therefore stop at that verse. It goes on with the next two verses. For God so loved the world, John 3.16, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And then he goes on to say in verses 35 and 36 of that chapter, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. You see, the Corinthians understood that they were once under God's wrath because they had no hope. The hope they found was in Christ, the ambassador of God to them. I wish I had time to go through the rest of this passage in 2 Corinthians 5. But I want to zero in with you on verse 21. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to verse 21 of chapter 5. Where Paul says, this is what had happened for the Corinthians. And what has happened for us if we trust in Christ. God made him, the Lord Jesus himself, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is why Paul says that he is an ambassador for Christ. You see, an ambassador only speaks what his master or for whom he re the one whom he re represents tells him to say an ambassador who speaks his own mind forfeits his work as ambassador for you see paul was speaking the mind of god the care of god for people that hated him, hated his son, refused his grace, refused to glorify him for who he was. God, Paul says, took his own son. Not that he made him a sinner, for Christ was sinless. But Paul says God made him sin itself. Not a sinner, but sin. 
So much so that as Jesus hung on that cross, God condemned that sin. And his wrath that Paul talks about in verse 11 was poured out on the beloved son. This is Paul's message. This is how he states his ministry as ambassador to the people of the world and to the Corinthians in particular. God did this so that, look at the verse, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Two transformations occurred at this juncture that Paul relates to us and to the Corinthians. We went from being enemies of God, deserving His wrath, to being called sons and daughters of God, forgiven. Sin wiped away. Standing pure before him. So that in Christ we are forgiven. Every sin. Not just past, not just present, but future sin as well. But there's another transformation. It doesn't just stop there. It says, look at the verse again. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We were transformed from unrighteous people outside of Christ under God's wrath for our sinfulness. And he has transferred us and changed us into the very righteousness of God as we have faith in Christ Jesus. So not only are we just forgiven, but we stand before God righteous as if we had never sinned as we trust in Christ Jesus. This, beloved, is reconciliation. But you see, reconciliation is a very, very costly thing. What an amazing gift. Reconciliation with God. What about reconciliation for the rest of us. Jesus, when asked about this on many occasions in the gospel, answered. One of the ways he answered was in the Lord's Prayer, which we just prayed a short while ago. And forgive us our sin, our debts as we also have forgiven 
how are debtors? Notice the condition. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then later in verse 14 of chapter 6, Jesus says in the prayer, For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. This was his comment on the prayer. In Romans 5.10, the Apostle Paul says, When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Later in Ephesians, he says, In this one body he reconciled both of them to God through the cross. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Beloved, in the Gospels, reconciliation is demonstrated through the life and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he describes more about that reconciliation for the rest of us in a parable called the parable of the unmerciful servant found in Matthew 18 verses 21 through 35. Listen to the story. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And he began the settlement. A man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me. I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything he had, that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. 
I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Beloved, that's a scary story. Reconciliation for the rest of us is based solely and only on the salvation that we have in Christ. His reconciliation of us to God. That's why in the church there should be justice. There should be forgiveness. Because we are to model this good gift of justice and reconciliation that Christ gave us. Who are we to refuse forgiveness to anyone? As we think about the reality of Christ's reconciliation of us to God, the price he paid for us, and that we as Christian believers, as we join together as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, how can we do any less as his servants than to be reconciled to one another? The problem with me and with us is often we don't recognize how immense our own sin really is. We compare ourselves with other people. Oh, I'm better than she or I'm better than he or so-and-so is better than she or so-and-so is better than he. You see, beloved, if we understand the immensity of our own sin and how much it costs Christ to reconcile us to God, then we may have a better understanding of how to forgive one another. C.S. Lewis, in the book Weight of Glory, says this, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable. Let me read that again. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable. Because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you and in me. Reconciliation has a high price. Jesus, our Lord, took the very justice of God and his wrath so that we might practice forgiveness 
as we are forgiven in him and we are made because of our faith in him to be the righteousness of God. Let us practice reconciliation by being ambassadors of Christ. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give thanks for your gift to us of forgiveness and of righteousness in Christ. We don't understand it, but we rejoice in it. Help us as we love one another and as we live with one another to do it in a way that reflects your goodness, your forgiveness, your grace. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Five years ago, First Pres chose to follow the call of God on our hearts to step out of our physical church and into the community around us. And one of the ways we chose to do that was by entering into partnership with Hollis Academy. As you can imagine, with Hollis Academy having 97.7% of our students living in poverty, the barriers are greater than in most other schools. First Presbyterian has sent many mentors and homeroom moms and dads. Every classroom has a homeroom mom or dad that assists the students and the teachers. I see a tremendous difference that the mentors make. It's just a weekly commitment, but I'm here and I see the students and how they look forward to that visit. After I started, I, I truly fell in love with uh, 15 brand new family members of mine who are Ms. Lanchie's uh, class and uh, I got to know most of them pretty well and it is the most rewarding thing I have ever done. Uh, I would do it for me as much as I would do it for them. First Press has made a huge impact at Hollis Academy. There's several different things that they do for us and, and it's, it's teachers and students alike, but our students, it's a trickle down effect. Our students are the ones who, who really benefit from it. I am a returning student after 17 years. I go to um, Sullivan Center over here getting my high school education. God has made a way and I just thank you for Jim Stan allowing First Presbyterian to come into my life. Without First Press, I wouldn't be in the place that I am in now. So I'm truly thankful for the blessing that I have been given. Thank you, First Press, for what you do at Hollis. One of the things we started last year uh, at Hollis is the Christmas store. We've allowed the children's parents at Hollis to come. Uh, they pay five bucks so that they feel invested in it. They can pick out probably about a hundred bucks worth of Christmas presents for their kids. One really neat experience for me was when Kevin's mom, uh, the child I mentor, came in and shopped for her, I think, six kids that were at Hollis. Uh, that's the first time that I met her. She put the connection together that I was mentoring Kevin. She was so appreciative, and I got to go alongside of her while she asked me what I thought Kevin would like, and that was just extremely special. It made both the Christmas store and the mentoring portion of my work really hit home. I'm Judy Dickey and I'm involved with the Feed the Children program at Hollis Academy. We started the program four years ago and we were sending home food with 25 students every weekend and now the program has grown to 111 children receiving the food. Thank you for sending home food with me every weekend. Thank you, First Press, for um, letting us have a room period. By entering into this relationship with Hollis, we've been able over the last five years to establish strong relationships with administrators and teachers, but also with students and families. Our desire is that they'll look back and one day they'll be able to say, 
that's what a Christian does. <laughs> that's what the Christian faith is all about. It's about love and hope. We pray daily and powerfully for every student in this school and for their families that they will know the love and the hope of God. So we invite you to come and join us in this life-changing, community-impacting ministry at Hollis Academy.